We, we, we love guests. We, we regard it as a, as a blessing from God that you would be among us. And we pray that God's, God would meet you in a specific way this morning. So, so thanks for joining us. Let me just take a second and kind of locate all of us with where we are in our series right now. So we're in a series on the book of Acts. The series is titled Unconquered, which we thought was a great way to describe the gospel. Uh, Paul, Pastor Paul thought it was a shameless ripoff of the Seminole Nation. So uh, we, can, we can resolve that later. But we're in a series, and we've, we've kind of gone through the first eight chapters, and we've just kind of crested the wave in the, in the ninth chapter. And so you can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. And we're going to read together. The title of this morning's message is The Story-Flipping Savior. The Story-Flipping Savior. So we're going to begin reading in Acts chapter 9 in verse 19, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. So it's a, it's a lengthy passage of Scripture for us this morning. Acts chapter 9, 20, or I'm sorry, verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Now, by the way, when it says he, it's talking about Saul, who's also referred to in the New Testament as Paul, the, the Apostle Paul. So, for some days he, that Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who were with him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has not he come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in, the basket, in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, 
Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. And they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, saying, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, he took him, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, this is a long section of Scripture, and yet we are convinced this morning that your word speaks to us short or long. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would help us to understand your word, that your name might be glorified in our life in a greater way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Someone once said that the most effective way to preach a message is to tell them what you, tell, tell them what you want to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you told them. It's a great way to parent, too, by the way. Tell them what you told them, or tell them what you want to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you told them. If we want to understand Acts chapter 9, I, I think there's one single idea I want to leave you with this morning that I trust will be imprinted on your brain as a result of us studying this chapter together, and that idea is that Jesus flips your story. That Jesus, that the gospel, the way the gospel works in us, whether you're here and you know Jesus or whether you're here and you're just curious about this whole thing, Jesus flips your story. And that's one of the things that we discover as we begin to wade in to chapter 9, that the message of the gospel is so powerful, so transformational, that it actually turns our world upside down. It reverses the direction in which we walk. It, 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 it takes us from one place to another place, and we're not always sure even how we got there. You know, when a mafia guy turns informant, he, he kind of changes his allegiance and begins to testify on behalf of the truth. They say he's been flipped because he's begun to talk about the truth of what really happened. 
When we repent, that's what's happening in our life is that the power of Jesus is flipping us. We were heading in one direction. Now we're heading in, a, in the other direction. We were thinking one way, and now we're thinking another way. In fact, the word repentance, the Greek word metanoia, literally means to change one's mind, to change one's direction, to reverse the way we were headed in the interest of heading in another place. Now, in Scripture, the gospel which, by the way, if you're not familiar with that phrase, the gospel is simply the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection and the impact that has upon the whole world. The gospel is not merely a historical report that's offered to us from the data in Scripture. The gospel is a message that the Spirit of God fills with the power of God. And so we have as unbeliever or believer, the power of God coming at us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul tells the Romans that the gospel is, quote, the power of God unto salvation. That's why we titled the series Unconquered, because the gospel is unconquered as we march through the book of Acts. It is God's dynamic message that conquers our deepest problem. It's the reality that Jesus continues to flip the story in our lives. Now, as we arrive at Acts chapter 9, what's happening is there are two principal figures that are portrayed, both of whom got flipped through the gospel, both of whom will fill extraordinary roles in this emerging church. In fact, extraordinary roles in redemptive history, both of whom are getting overturned by Jesus, by the gospel, and then flipping other people as they proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Acts chapter 9, beginning in, the, beginning in verse 19, talks to us about a guy named Saul. Paul, Saul, same guy. And this guy Saul was just converted, and Saul begins preaching his first messages. If you're interested about in Saul's conversion, just listen to Josh's excellent message from last week on the conversion of Saul. Saul was this very respected religious scholar who had basically dedicated his life prior to conversion to the eradication of Christianity. He wanted it destroyed entirely from the earth. And he had this evil plot. His plot was that he would enter into the home of Christians. He would have them, men and women, dragged from their house and taken before the high priest. I mean, Josh rightly last week called him a terrorist. If cattle cars were around back then, he would have been using them, packing them with Christians, hauling them to Jerusalem to have them stand in front of the high priest. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul called himself a persecutor, a violent opponent of the church. He referred to himself as a blasphemer of God. So we're talking about somebody who is portrayed in Scripture, who portrays himself in Scripture prior to conversion as a cruel, heartless, religious assassin. But then he met Jesus one day on the road to Damascus, and Christ flipped his story. Flipped his story. And he began then to represent the very thing he once sought to annihilate. And when, when God does that... The gospel flipping that can take place can become utterly mind-numbing 
It can become utterly inexplicable, sometimes irrational, sometimes even bizarre. I mean, here we have a man who set out to Damascus to destroy the Christians, and he enters Damascus, according to verse 19, needing the Christians. He wants to find the Christians. He wants to identify himself with the Christians. I mean, he left Jerusalem with papers to arrest the fugitive Christians, and then he enters Jerusalem as a fugitive Christian. See, God, Christ was just flipping his story each and every way. One of the things that Acts chapter 9 teaches us is that the the flipping of the story doesn't simply happen in conversion, but it happens throughout life. And that was part of what was going on with Paul, with Saul, and, and with Peter. So upon conversion, this Saul guy begins to preach. And this preaching utterly astonished the Christians at Damascus. In fact, let's just read what they say in verses 21 and 22. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So they're utterly amazed. The J.B. Phillips version of Scripture says they were staggered, totally disoriented on what was going on here. And the amazement comes to them because the very man that was appointed to destroy them is now seeking to defend the Savior that they serve. And there's a similar response that he gets when he goes to Jerusalem. They're not merely amazed, but they're afraid to go around him. In fact, in verse 26, it says they were afraid, for they did not believe he was a disciple. They didn't believe it. I mean, we, we got to appreciate what was taking place there. Just, just imagine having a reputation that is so bad that when when Christians hear of your conversion, they're saying, oh, I'm not going around him. I don't want to have anything to do with that guy. That's bad news. I don't know what's up there, but it can't be good because they thought they were being set up. They thought he was not who he appeared to be. Just imagine somebody in your mind that, that represents that to you. You know, for the last 12 years, the, uh, the country where the persecution of Christians has been the most extreme has been North Korea. In fact, Kim Jong, the guy who leads the country, believes that he's a god. He, he has eliminated and made illegal the use of Bibles, and he has imprisoned or at least confined a labor camp somewhere between 50 and 70,000 Christian people. Now, just imagine with me for a second hearing the news that Kim Jong was converted. And not only was he attending Four Oaks, but he wanted to come to your fellowship group next week. Just imagine that, okay? Think about the icebreaker. Hi, I'm Kim. Um, Let's see, I, I lead North Korea. Up until a couple of weeks ago, I was God, um, and I was killing Christians. You know, that's the kind of thing that's going on here in Acts chapter 9, as the disciples are trying to wrap their brain around the, the reality that there is a power so great that it can flip a man's life. 
that can flip the way he thinks, that it can get him thinking completely the opposite of what he once believed. And so the disciples in Damascus and then the apostles in Jerusalem had to wrestle through this idea of, is this sincere or is this a setup? Is this sincere or is this a sting operation? And we need to discern what's really taking place. But what these passages are doing is they're illustrating the effect of the gospel that when Jesus begins to flip our story or other people's stories, life becomes very unpredictable. It becomes very unpredictable. I mean, Saul was a danger to Christians. Now Christians are saving him by lowering him through the hole in the wall, through the window to the ground. Saul despised the apostles. He goes into Jerusalem. And what's he want to do? He just wants to get with the apostles. He just wants to get into their church. Because when Jesus flips your story, life gets pretty ironic. And so that's one character that's portrayed in Acts chapter 9. And then there's this other guy beginning in verse 32. Luke kind of leaves Saul and makes an abrupt transition to the man named Peter. And by the way, the next three chapters in Acts are going to be dedicated to the life and ministry of Peter. And, and, and in terms of the irony of what's taking place, the story-flipping irony is about to get really thick and really creamy with lots of nutty goodness in the life of Peter as Acts 9 continues to unfold. But to truly understand what's going on in chapter 9 and chapter 10, see chapter 9 is basically setting up chapter 10. But to understand why chapter 9 is setting up chapter 10, we got to go back just for a second to chapter 8 and just read the first verse because it tells us much about what's going on in the mind of the apostles. So look at chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his, that's talking about Stephen, by the way, his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, listen to this, except the apostles, except the apostles. Remember what the word apostle means? It means sent ones. They were all scattered. They all went throughout the world except the sent ones, except the men who had walked with the Lord and seen him reach out to the Samaritan woman, and their doors were blown off as a result of that, except for the guys who stood with him when he gave the Great Commission and told them to go throughout the world, except the ones who were there right before Jesus ascended, and he said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, that's where I'm sending you, except for the guys that were there when the Spirit of God was poured out, and Peter himself stood up and began to interpret what was going on and saying, the Spirit of God is being poured out at all people, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord might be saved, except for those guys. See, What's happening is these guys that are the apostles are really still living a life that is in and about Jerusalem. It's in and about this, this world they live in, this, this place they're comfortable, this thing they're involved in, their people, their mates. And God is slowly breaking them out of a way of thinking that's confining them with respect to the mission. 
And the irony of ironies that we have to deal with is that the first half of Acts doesn't really record the apostles' obedience as much as their hesitation. Their hesitation to go out and do all the things that Jesus had called them to do. I brought a quote with me this morning by a missionary named Don Richardson who once, once said the following. He said, quote, Hundreds of millions of Christians think that Luke's Acts of the Apostles records the 12 apostles' obedience to the Great Commission, actually records their reluctance to obey it. Can you identify with that at all? I know I can. I mean, we, we hear it. We've studied it. We've read the words. We've heard the messages. But still inside, there's this reluctance where it's really hard for us to break out from among our people. That place of comfort, that our Jerusalem. And so part of what God is doing here is He's pushing them out. And it's gonna, it's gonna take real, it's gonna get real lift in Acts chapter 12, 10 through the experience with Cornelius. And so we continue in Acts chapter 9, and there's the healing of Aeneas, and there's the resurrection of Dorcas, and those are certainly significant in that, that Christ is moving in the, through the life of Peter, and Peter comes in, and Aeneas is sick. He suffered for eight years. He's been paralyzed in bed, and he preaches the name of Jesus. He prays for him in the name of Jesus, and Aeneas is healed instantly, and his story gets flipped. He's no longer a sufferer. He can now be a servant in a different way. Similarly, Dorcas is dead. She's dead. Peter comes in, tells her to rise in the name of Jesus, and she rises. Her story gets dramatically flipped. She was once dead. Now she's alive. And so Acts chapter 9 continues this theme that we've studied already where, where the church is continuing to do the things, that, that, that they're continuing to do the works that Jesus did, which is part of the reason why Acts was preserved for us. But I think that we've had an opportunity already to talk about the wonder of the power of God and the purpose of the power of God in the book of Acts. So what I want to do this morning is I want to turn the diamond a little bit, and I want to look at it in another way. I want to look at this passage through another window because what's equally significant here are the locations that are mentioned in this passage. Peter is in Lydda. Peter is then in Joppa. What's equally significant is that Peter is no longer in Jerusalem, that he has begun to move outside of Jerusalem. And as a result of taking these steps, Jesus is continuing the process of flipping Peter's story by flipping the way he's thinking about certain things. See, he's moving Peter out. He's getting him out beyond Jerusalem, and the stage is being set in Acts chapter 9 for the big switch to be flipped in Acts chapter 10 with the whole experience of Cornelius and Peter saying, oh my goodness, now I get it. Now I understand what's taking place. I can no longer call unclean that which is clean. I can no longer show partiality. Now why he's getting it then after everything he's walked through, after walking with Jesus Christ, after having all the experiences that he's had, after receiving the commission that sent him to the world, after liberating his mind to think about all nations, but he's still in Jerusalem. 
He still has to stay there. And so Jesus is continuing to flip the way he thinks so that he can get his servant out beyond his comfort zone, out beyond that which he finds most comfortable. And this whole section in Acts chapter 9 ends then with a seemingly random report in verse 43, where it just said, and they they stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. And you think, where does that, why do we need to know, you know, where they stayed? If it's at a Motel 6 or a Sheraton, you know, what, what relevance does that have? Well, that's really important to understand how we're being set up to read chapter 10, because tanners back in those days were despised by the Jews because tanners dealt with the skins of dead animals, which made them unclean. See, tanning was an unclean operation. It's an operation, it's a vocation that would have been spurned by the local synagogue, spurned by the Jews, and Peter is staying with him. So now, you know, you're really beginning, beginning to get a sense of how Peter's being set up, how God is retooling his thinking because for all of his life, in, his, in Peter's mind, non-Jews were unclean, Samaritans beneath him, Gentiles inferior. And yet Christ is now at work in the life of Peter, creating this new narrative, flipping his story so that he would take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles, overcoming his reluctance to break out beyond Jerusalem, overcoming his reluctance to break out beyond the Jews and take the message to those that don't know Jesus Christ. And so that's part of what, how Acts 9 works in the, whole, in, the, in the whole work of the book of Acts. It's setting us up to realize that the gospel is pushing out the people of God to the places that they would never go apart from Jesus. Jesus is flipping their story. So we're going to jump into Acts chapter 10 on December 28th. That's the next time we're going to be in the book of Acts for the next few weeks. We're just going to be, going to be celebrating Advent together. But what I want to do now is I, I want to make two distinct pastoral applications from Acts chapter 9. I want to do one from the life of Saul and one from the life of Peter. And I want to look at two implications of what it means to have your story flipped. Okay, so two pastoral implications. Here's the first one. When Jesus flips our story, he doesn't erase the past. When Jesus flips our story, he doesn't erase the past. Now remember, Paul's past, Saul's past was really serious. You know, it's why everybody was so angsty at the thought of getting connected to him because they knew what he represented. They knew where he came from. They knew that this was a guy that wanted an inquisition. His cause was to discredit Christ and collapse Christianity. He was a brutal, bloody, religious predator. But then Jesus came in, and he flipped his story. God's call was irresistible upon his life. It overruled his will. It arrested him for the purposes of God, and it appointed him to begin to represent the very thing he once sought to destroy. Jesus flipping, always flipping. But have you ever noticed how, how Paul never forgot who he was? 
He never forgot about it. In fact, in the book of Acts, we're going to discover as we study it together that, that on three different occasions, Paul tells his story in the book of Acts. He tells about the past. He talks about encountering Jesus. He talks about the change that it's made in his life. In fact, when he leads, he kind of leads out with his story. And what we begin to learn is that there's something about the way Paul related to his past that didn't condemn him, that didn't send him hurtling into self-accusation because he remembered how he behaved in the past apart from Jesus Christ. But he was a man who understood, no, Christ has, has flipped me. Christ has flipped my story. And so he saw the past through the gospel. Christ flipped it, and, 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 and so the sin that wanted to imprison him or, or, the, or Satan who wanted to imprison him or death that wanted to confine him no longer had a grip over him. It got flipped. They got flipped in the process. So it's the reason why when you hear Paul talk, even about his past, there's a sense where he could, he could talk about it with a kind of relish, a kind of enthusiasm. He talks about being the worst of sinners in 1 Timothy chapter 1 because there's a way that he looked at the past where the bitterness of those memories, the bitterness of those sins, the bitterness of the way that he, he walked across, apart from Jesus Christ made Christ sweet to him. And so there was an orientation he had because he knew that Jesus flipped his story. I mean, Aeneas is the same way. You know, you don't forget eight years of suffering. You don't forget eight years of being in bed and not being able to move. Eight years of being paralyzed. Your identity very quickly becomes an identity as sufferer. But Peter comes in, and through the name of Jesus, Aeneas' story gets flipped as well. Dorcas gets raised up. That's the work that God is doing. He's always coming in. He's always working about the flip. And so I guess the question I want to, it makes me want to ask you this morning is, do you think about your earlier chapters, the earlier chapters of your story before Jesus, do you think about them in the right way? You know, it's funny, the past is, is, is like a magnet. It can, it can draw us sometimes and, and repel us at other times. We're we're, we're, we're drawn to it. We want to retreat into it. And then at other times, we want to flee from it because we remember it in ways that are horrific. And so it can be a judge that condemns us, or it can be something that we feel drawn towards, that we feel... And, and, and something that, that ultimately, for a lot of people, it just represents a lot of pain. Because when we think about the past, it condemns us, it accuses us, it defiles us. We feel ashamed for some of the things that were done. In other words, there's just there's no God in, in our story back there. We don't see God. We don't locate God in the past. You know, I grew up as a kind of kind of a type A jock type. That was my profile. You know, setting goals and trying to take hills all the time and new goals and new things to do. And, and, and so there's something about that, that personality and that profile and something about youth itself where you're always looking forward. You're always looking to the future. But there's an age that you reach 
And this is good for the younger set here to know about. There's an age that you reach where your orientation starts to look back. You begin to think backwards a lot more, and you get very reflective on life. And you begin to see the cracks in the veneer. You begin to see the failures that you've, you've had. You begin to, to recognize that certain ways, certain things that are playing out in your life are bad fruit from decisions that you've made. And, and, and you kind of, in the way that we think about it, we can end up polluting our story with ourself because when we think about it, God is never in that picture. God is never in the story. And so we get shocked. We get appalled by the fact that we failed in the past. Well, of course we failed in the past. We're not God. And if we're not God, that means we're, we're, we're going to fall short. We're going to sin. We're going to fail. In fact, we're going to fail again. In fact, you're going to fail again probably today or this week in some way. One of the reasons why we have public confession in our worship each week is because we just assume, hey, we've all blown it this week. I'm working with hundreds of sins each week. We've all blown it. Let's just go to the Lord together and let's, let's confess it because it reminds us that we need a Savior. It reminds us that Christ imputed his record of righteousness to us so that we can now stand clothed in the works of God and free from the accusation that the flesh or the enemy or that the world might bring at us. So, so how we relate to the past becomes very important because it, it, it tells us about whether we're really seeing God in the past and, and how much of our story has been flipped by Christ versus our own flesh. And the past doesn't always just equal pain. Sometimes the past can be a very attractive thing to, to, to re retreat into. Sometimes the past can represent sanctuary, you know, a, a, a simpler time when our life was more sheltered, our life was more protected. Part of the danger of holidays and the holiday season is, is the way that our culture tries to, tries to stir nostalgia in us. And, and nostalgia is kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a two-edged sword. It can be a wonderful thing, and it can be a very dangerous thing as well because we can begin thinking about the past in a way that the past never happened. And we can, we can dream of that time when we were never lonely. Things were always wonderful. We, were never, we never had the problems that we had now. And, and the reality is, is that it probably wasn't as peaceful as, as we imagine. But the danger of nostalgia is that it, it sanitizes the past. And part of what happens when the past is sanitized is God is removed from it. And so God is at work in our life in the same way he was at work in Peter's life, inserting himself in our story and then flipping it for his glory, flipping it so that he, he, he makes sure that we understand that he was there in the past, he'll be there in the present, and he'll be there in the future as well. So a gospel-flipped life doesn't deny the past. It doesn't sanitize the past. It reinterprets the past. It doesn't make the past irrelevant. It makes the past impotent. In other words, it makes the past so that it doesn't have power over us anymore. The way that our parents parented us or didn't parent us doesn't have power over us anymore. Some of the ways that we gave ourselves to sin back then doesn't have power over us anymore. And so, we renounce those things we once worshipped 
And we renounce everything that accuses us as well, so that the primary relevance of the past is not in identity. It doesn't define us. It doesn't name us. The primary relevance of the past is not in identity. It's in testimony. It's our story of the way God led us to Himself. It's our story of how Christ flipped us. And the good news of that is that that means our past no longer needs to define us. It no longer needs to bind us. That Jesus flips our story so that God's past overwrites our past. And we can live in the goodness of that which Christ has provided. I brought a quote with me this morning by Sinclair Ferguson who said, quote, The determining factor of my existence is no longer my past but Christ's past. It's Christ's past. And so that's my first application this morning. It's that when Jesus flips our story, He doesn't erase the past. He redeems it. He doesn't erase the past. He flips it. Secondly, and lastly, when Jesus flips our story, our prejudices should remain in the past. So what's happening here in Acts chapter 9 is that Peter needed some major adjustments to move on. Peter needed some major adjustments to lead on in the purposes of God. And all of this is is a big setup for Peter where in Acts chapter 10, he's going to have his aha moment with the Spirit of God. Because the reality is this man has heard Jesus Christ. He's heard the Great Commission. He's heard Christ's final words to go into all the nations. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. He was was the one that interpreted the outpouring of the Holy Spirit for everyone. But up to this point, his attitude to the Gentiles was, surely, Lord, they're unclean. I would never go to them. I can't touch them. Oh, yeah, he wanted to reach the world, (laughs) but he just didn't want to reach them. He wanted to reach the world, but first God had to break the sent ones out of Jerusalem, which is another way to say God had to break the sent ones out of their prejudice and out of a parochial way of thinking that bound them to the mentality of Jerusalem. Have you ever noticed that it's easy for Christians to have a kind of insular mentality? where it just becomes about, you know, like our friends and who we're around and the church that we go to and the people that we're with. In other words, life is just all about Jerusalem. I was telling the elders recently about an experience I had where I enrolled in a, in a class in a, in a local college on race just to get out among some unbelievers, because my world was so preoccupied with Christians all the time. And in one of the first classes I had, there was a girl sitting in front of me, turned around and introduced herself as, I, I forget what the name was, Jan or something. And she just said, I'm, a, you know, I'm an atheist, I'm a lesbian, my name is Jan. I thought, oh, I don't get many of these in my life. <laughs> you know, this isn't, this isn't typically who I run with. And, 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 and our world becomes Jerusalem. In other words, it's all about our family, all about our church, all about our people, all, all about those who think like us and look like us and worship like us. And it can get to the point where we begin to think that our thing is the only thing. And so 
when Saul converts, when somebody like Saul, the guy who the entire future of, his, of, of Christianity is, 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 is hinged upon, he can't even get into our group because his story is too bad. We're afraid of Saul. You know, it's not unusual for God to expose an attitude toward the harvest before he sends us to the harvest. In other words, he, he flips a prejudice in us so that love can take root for the people that we're called to serve and reach out to. He'll move us in with Simon the Tanner so he can flip our whole understanding of what unclean really means. He can flip it on us completely. Let me ask you a question. Who do you consider unclean in your world? Who do I consider unclean? Who are the, who's that person that you don't want to go to, that people that you don't want to identify with, you don't want to go to? See, we begin to study Peter's journey in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 10, and we discover that it's really a mirror reflecting back to us our own heart. We study his life, but we end up looking at ours. We study his life, but end up looking at ourselves. Because God is always about this work in our life. He's flipping our story. He's getting us to think out beyond where we're most comfortable. And part of what God wants to do in Four Oaks is that very thing. Because you know what? And I'll speak on behalf of myself, but I think I represent most of us in this room. It's really hard to get out there. It's really hard to think about those things that are taking place outside of our little world. I mean, one wonders whether the Ferguson tragedy of the Michael Brown shooting or the choking death of Eric Garner in New York isn't God's opportunity to flip some of us. Not what took place, but now that it's happened, how we're thinking about it or how we're not thinking about it. To flip us from just immediately assigning blame and self-righteously judging to understanding our own hearts, understanding our own prejudices, getting us out beyond Jerusalem, getting us asking questions that we wouldn't ask apart from some tragic situation. You know, to have a white person understand why do African Americans believe that they are policed more than protected by the policemen, by law enforcement officials? That's a really important question. That's a really relevant question because that's the experience of certain African Americans, and it's really important to understand that. And the gospel helps us to move beyond self-righteous reaction to understanding the story and also locating ourselves in the story. But it's not just the the gospel addresses white folks. The gospel addresses African Americans as well. It's important for an African American to understand why do some white police men and women feel that African Americans won't hold themselves accountable when there is some kind of destructive behavior that's taking place. And, and, and the Spirit of God begins to work in that and work among Christians because ultimately what God is doing is He's getting us thinking beyond ourselves because He's preparing us for a day when, when there will be before His throne 
people from every nation, every tribe and tongue, every nation. And so prior to getting us there, he starts flipping us in this life. He starts reversing the way that we think. And that's part of the reason why he has us in this series to begin with. So I want to ask you, who are your Samaritans? Who's your Simon the Tanner? Let me put it that way. Who don't you feel is worth the time or the effort? You know, maybe it's some race or some ethnic group. For a Jew, it's a Palestinian. For maybe an Indian, it's a Pakistani. For an Irish Catholic, it's a New England Presbyterian. For a white person, maybe it's an African American. For an African American, maybe it's an Asian. Is there anyone you wouldn't want sitting next to you this morning? Is there anyone that you think is unclean? Unclean. Homosexual. Ex-convict. Barack Obama. A man or woman with AIDS. What would you do if a prostitute came in here this morning and started washing your feet, wiping them with her hair? It it, it tends to flip you. That's the intent. And God wants us, He wants to use this series to surface self-righteousness and superiority. You know why? Here's the reason why. Because you'll never reach a people you don't love. You'll never reach a people you don't love. And so the gospel is big enough that it starts to penetrate all the way down to those places that we feel self-righteous and superior, and God gets in there through the gospel, and He begins to flip it. He begins to flip it. You know why? Because Jesus flips our story. And that's what I wanted to tell you this morning. Because an effective message will tell them and then tell them what you told them, and then remind them of what's most important. The gospel flips your story. Jesus flips our story. Aren't you grateful for that today? Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for the grace and mercy that you have shown to us by, through your gospel, flipping us flipping our story, and then putting us in a position where we are called to go forward with that very message and extend that message to others. Lord, help us. Help us to overcome our prejudices. Help us to overcome those things that keep us in Jerusalem, that we might magnify your name with every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning.